Healthcare Today is produced and paid for by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to WDEV at RadioVermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon. This is Dr. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers and this is Healthcare Today. We are going to be uh, talking today about aging and the care of the elderly. This is especially important for us here in Vermont because we have the second oldest average age in the nation behind Maine. As a country, the percentage of older citizens is the fastest-growing segment of our population. Even so, uh, we are a youth-obsessed culture. And while there is currently a uh, focus on racial, ethnic, and gender discrimination, age discrimination is rarely discussed and is certainly still very present and takes many forms. We have two people today who are going to talk to us about aging and care of the elderly. Uh, Mr. John Leland is a New York Times reporter who recently uh, concluded a seven-year and 21-article series on uh, called Lessons on Living with Loss, in which he followed uh, a number of older citizens living in the community, all of them 85 years or older, as they lived their lives. That article, the final article, by the way, ran on January 6, 2022, just recently, and I recommend it if you can uh, find the New York Times online or, or in your library. He also has written a book called Happiness is a Choice You Make, and we'll talk about that book uh, during this hour. Mr. Leland is a former senior editor at Newsweek and uh, previously and earlier in life graduated from Columbia University. Also with us uh, from Boston is Dr. Matthew Russell. Dr. Russell is the clinical director of geriatric medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital and has helped expand the presence of geriatric medicine in both the inpatient and outpatient settings. He was also the founding medical director of the Boston University's Physician Assistant Program. Mr. Russell is uh, born uh, born and raised uh, in Massachusetts, or at least uh, educated in Massachusetts. He graduated from uh, Boston University as an undergraduate. He went to medical school at the University of Massachusetts. He did his internal medicine residency at Boston University and Boston uh, Medical Center and stayed there to do a geriatric fellowship. So I want to welcome both Mr. Leland and Dr. Russell. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Mr. Leland, let me start with you. Um, You're with the New York Times. And have you been with this project for the entire seven years? I have. I started it in 2015. Barack Obama was in the White House. We were in an entirely different world. Tell and what, my idea. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, the plan was to, to do it for a year, to follow six people who were over the age of 85 for a year. It, it turned into something much, much longer than that, and I'm glad it did. 
How did the project start? Was it something you were interested in or your editors or combination? It began, we were looking at the census, the 2010 census, which in the, at that point was having uh, more data was coming out. And we, the number that jumped out was the rapid growth of the 85 and up population. When I was born, there were fewer than a million, and now there's a little more than 6 million. So uh, as a journalist, you think, well, if there were, the number of teenagers had multiplied by a factor of six in a relatively short period of time, we'd be all over that. Uh, let's look at this population and, and try to look at what life looks like to them as opposed to what uh, sort of our outside bodies uh, made of them. So it began as a one-year project and ultimately has led to a seven-year project with the last assume the last article being written uh, earlier this month. What uh, led you to want to extend it? Well, I got to the end of the first year when, when this series was supposed to end. And uh, just a, a little selfish on my part, I found that there was something I was missing in my life without seeing these people all the time. And it, it, it was a complete surprise to me because I'm very good at detaching from my stories. Uh, it, it was a somewhat scary kind of way. But I found that I had come to form, I guess, relationships, and, and I was learning things from these individuals that I couldn't really learn anywhere else. They'd been to this territory that other people I knew uh, hadn't been to, other than my mother, who was in the same age group. And, and so I found that for my own sake, I needed to keep going. And, and for their sake, they kept doing things. Uh, one of the people was a filmmaker, Jonas Meckes, an important avant-garde filmmaker, and he kept making films or uh, having museum exhibitions. And some of the others had other things going on, on in their lives. They would, sometimes they would have bad health outcomes or sometimes they would have good things going on, like they would be going on vacation with their daughters. And they would invite me to, to stop in and see what things were going on there. How how did you originally select these, uh, I think, seven – how many people, seven people? There were six, six people. people. How did you select uh, them? Also, I was looking for a variety. They were all New Yorkers because I'm a Metro reporter. And then within that, I was looking for a variety of, of uh, different living situations from a nursing home to, like, a loft in a hipster neighborhood. I was looking for different ethnicities uh, in New York, especially the growth of the 85 adult population is strictly is from the immigrant community, uh, the non-native born community. So I wanted people who were born outside the U.S. I wanted a mix of races and I wanted two things. I wanted a couple who had met in old age and had the courage to fall in love in old age, knowing that they couldn't do it forever and, and that one of them would watch one of the other one decline. I thought there was a certain amount of courage to that. And I wanted a, a, a gay man or a lesbian because I felt like I didn't understand what that life was like. So I found this mixture of people and they turned out to be just a, a, a great font of wisdom, all of them. And I, I knew that I didn't want uh, to get what we usually write or what we often write about, which is that 93-year-old who's, uh, you know, like the super senior who's jumping out of airplanes and running marathons, uh, kind of Stepford character. I, I didn't want that because we get that. Those stories are always tremendously moving when we get them, but I feel we've gotten that story. I wanted just regular folks. Uh, 
I want to let our listeners know that our phones are open. If you have any questions, comments about uh, aging or uh, for either of our guests or just in general, we're at 802-244-1777. Again, that's 802-244-1777, and we welcome your calls. So, Mr. Leland, you began the series, and how often would you meet with your the people who became your friends, really? Uh, well, they didn't become my friends. They were still my, my subjects that I was writing about. I have to keep some distance, but they were important people in my life. Uh, I would meet with them sometimes every couple of weeks, sometimes a little bit less often from that, and that's in the first year. After that, I met with them uh, less frequently. But when you have six people meeting everybody uh, twice in a month, uses up half the days in, in the month, and then you need some time to write and some time to absorb and and, and make sense of what you've, you've learned from them. And over the years, did, did, your, did your readership, New York Times readership, start to engage? Did you hear from people over the years uh, in terms of following this story? It was absolutely one of my favorite things about this, and it's one thing I look forward to people calling in because – Everybody had a story about somebody that I should be writing about or they were somebody I should be writing about. You have to hear about my aunt who lives in a four-floor walk-up apartment and she's you know, still writing letters to the local paper about the garbage pickup on her block. Or You have to know about my uncle who's, who's depressed and in his home. And, and people were telling me these great stories about the, their loved ones or the people they knew and it was just a reminder that the people who are, are doing well at this age and, and aren't uh, sort of shut in and, and divorced from the world aren't rarities. They're the norm. Uh, you know, in it, in the introduction, I talked about the fact that we are a youth-obsessed culture, uh, despite the fact that the, the older population is the fastest growing, and that uh, ageism, which is, you know, in its various forms, is still quite prevalent. Um, how did your subjects feel about that? Or did they have any feelings? Where did they feel marginalized by the big, larger society? I think a, a, an almost universal experience would be uh, feeling invisible. That the people who used to ask for their advice weren't asking for their advice anymore. Uh, when they went out, people didn't look at them or they tried to look past them. They didn't want to engage with them in ways that they might have when they were middle-aged or younger. Uh, they were just kind of the subtle insults that people had to deal with with someone saying, oh, hello, dear. Oh, you're 92 years young. Isn't that wonderful? Or your mother's so cute. And one of, one of the women I got to know, a daughter of one of the elders, uh, would say, my mother's not cute. My mother is a tough woman. She's, you know... She went through World War II. She went to college. She did. She raised four kids. She's not cute. And I think that ageism expresses itself in so many ways, including ways that might seem benign, but, but they really aren't. They're kind of embedded into our language. I think you make a very uh, good point that the, the people in this age cohort that you've been talking with uh, really were part of the greatest, quote-unquote, greatest generation that did – come through, uh, many of them, the, the Depression, economic depression of the 30s, World War II in the 40s, and all that followed. Um, so they, life has not been easy for many of them. Uh, no, and they led, they led full lives, 
and they continue to lead full lives at 92, 93, 94. They continue to lead full lives uh, in a wheelchair or fully ambulatory or what they can't hear as well as they used to, and they used to love to play piano, and they can't play piano anymore. They've had to give up some things, but what they haven't given up is a sense of engagement with lives and a sense of engagement with their own story. You know, you, you, you read about older people, it's just a story about loss. You ask somebody who's 85, 95 about their lives, they'll tell you a story that's entirely different from that, not defined by what they've lost, but, but by what they do. Can you give me? Can you give? Tell us a little bit about some of the people. Give us some examples. Oh, I always want to tell about each of them, and I think each of them has been my favorite at some points. Uh, Fred Jones was a World War II vet who always had a dirty joke for me when I went to visit him. And this is a man who was, when I met him, he was in the process of losing two toes to gangrene because he had diabetes, and uh, so he lived in this walk-up apartment, and it hurt him. Physically, every time he went up his, or down his stairs. And, and I asked Fred, you know, what was the best time of his life? And, and Fred said, right now. And it was just an amazing, amazing thing. And, and I tell that story to people sometimes. And if I ever tell it to an older person, I'll say, you know, like, and I'll say, you know, what do you think he's answered? And every time I ask, ask an older person, they'll say, he said, right now. You know, they'll know that. Uh, Helen Moses found the second love of her life in a nursing home in the Bronx with a man named Howie Zimmer, and they had off and on, on again and off again wedding plans over all the course of, of their life because her daughter really didn't want her to marry Howie. And they were they met in a nursing home, and they had the courage to, to love each other, which I was tremendously impressed by. King Wong was an immigrant from China and Hong Kong, and lived on just $700 a month in Social Security. And she couldn't afford the patches, the lidocaine patches, for her sore joints. So, but you have to think about her life, she'll say, that it was better now than when she was younger and had all those worries about paying her bills and getting food on the table and having to raise a family. She felt much more at ease now. So that's three of them. I I, I can go Mm -hmm. on, but... Mm -hmm. we have another guest on the program. Well, it, are there general – you've already talked about some of the general lessons perhaps that came out of this that you learned that perhaps surprised you. Um, what are some – if you had to summarize, what are some of the things that people should be thinking about as they get older? What have you learned that people should be thinking about as they get older to make this truly the best time of their lives? Well, I think the overarching theme of my, my work, as the elders kind of taught me how to write about them, was that, you know, whatever hardships we have, whatever age we are, we have an active role in, active say in what role we give them in our lives. We can make them the foreground of our story, the main part of it, or we can make them just things that happen to us along the way, setbacks. And how we tell our story is incredibly important. Uh, beyond that, I learned some simple, simple things. I mentioned Fred Jones before talking about this really hard period of time being the best time of his life. He said he would wake up every morning and say, thank God for another day. And, you know, I, I was tempted to, to think, I'll just kind of write that off. But I realized it was that daily practice of gratitude that, that got Fred going. 
I mentioned Helen Moses falling in love in the nursing home and her family not wanting her to marry Howie because they felt Howie had too many needs, uh, you know, and they were using up Helen's energy. But as I spent time with them, I realized that what Helen was getting from Howie was that he needed her. We all have this uh, a need to be needed. And uh, it was to, you know, Helen was able to, as an elder, able to measure her life by what she could do for other people, not what, what they could do for her. So her life had, had value. And uh, I mentioned earlier Jonas Meckes, the filmmaker. Jonas, you know, lived every day with a really concrete sense of purpose, and that was to create beauty in the world. Whatever that meant to him, Jonas had had a, a challenging life. He was a, a teenager in Lithuania when the Soviets came in and turned his life upside down. And the next year, the Nazis invaded, and uh, Jonas and his brother ended up in a series of Nazi slave labor camps. You so talk about two themes here that I think have come out a couple times in your discussion so far. One is having a sense of purpose. The other is having um, a community. Uh, uh, you know, it echoes what my father has told me recently when I was told him I was preparing this show. He is in this age cohort, and he uh, swims daily, um, and he also plans trips uh, two or three, four months out. Obviously, it's been difficult with COVID, but um, – on the short term, you know, getting up each day and having a place to go and seeing people. He said if he, you know, when the pool closed for a period of time in the early stage of COVID, it's very difficult because he wasn't, didn't have a place to go and he didn't have people to see each day. And it seems like that echoes some of what you're saying. I think that's absolutely true with, with one uh, codicil, which is that there's a, your father probably has a neighbor who doesn't need to see other people every day. She wants to see people once a week or, mm-hmm. you know, every three or four days. The the problem is when there's a gap between the amount of contact that people want and the amount of contact that they're getting. I, what I found in all the elders is that they were kind of able to filter out the meaningful connections they have from the ones that don't mean so much. Uh, you, you'll rarely find an elder uh, from an 85 was going to a networking event to try to meet that new person. You know, they, they have a sense that they, they have these meaningful relationships and they need to nourish those. And their boss is kind of a jerk they don't need to deal with anymore because they don't have a boss or a person at work that, you know, they don't really have anything in common with. They, they can ignore. But the ones that are able to cultivate the meaningful relationships uh, feel fully in community and, and the ones who don't, even though they might have every bit as much uh, uh, human contact as the others, you know, are going to feel lonely and isolated. What about all of the uh, things like uh, uh, computers and uh, email and 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 all of the things that are here now in our lives that were not there when they were growing up? To what extent have did it affect their lives? Did it help them or or not help them? They're tools, and I think it was a mixed bag. Some of the some of the elders, I should say, weren't on computers at all, and a lot of the people who are in institutions, uh, facilities, you know, may not have regular access to a computer. So, so that's that's a part of it. But the ones who found ways to use what what was comforting for them, and to toss out what wasn't. I, you know, I can think of one person. This would be my mother who always felt 
she would hear about the, the iPad and what a wonderful thing it is and want one of those. But to get an iPad, it was just a, a, just a source of complete frustration for her. And so we would get her the technologies, and it would just kind of get her depressed because she couldn't use them. So it's great that people have access to these tools, but, again, they should recognize, and we should all recognize, that they're just tools. Uh, what's important is, is meeting the needs that they have. If it's a need to socialize, it's not a need to have an iPad. It's a need to socialize. Talk about families for a minute. Here in Vermont, uh, I have noted over the years that um, uh, one of the reasons why some of our much older citizens can stay in their own homes is that they have family members living close by who check on them frequently. Uh, when I lived in a larger metropolitan area outside of Vermont, that was not always the case. What about New York City? Did, did these folks have family members who were actively involved in their lives or vice versa? A lot of them do, and what our Department of Aging says is there's a lot of people when they're in that early stage of old age will move to Florida. They'll play golf, they'll enjoy the warm weather, and then this is New Yorkers will move to Florida. And then as they get a bit older and they get a little more frail, they'll move back to New York City because their daughter is there or their mm-hmm. son is there or their relatives are there. So that's sort of a common uh, in fact, we talk about the teenagers doing boomerang, boomeranging, but a lot of elders boomerang as well. I've certainly noticed that as well. Um, let's talk briefly about COVID, which is obviously a major, must have affected their lives over the last couple of years. I mean, to what extent did it affect them and not only from their health standpoint, but from a social standpoint? Well, unfortunately, only one of the people that I followed was still alive when the pandemic hit and my mother. So I was able to follow things through the two of them. But also, as a reporter, I was assigned to go out and, and follow the, the what we knew was going to be the intense isolation of elders during COVID, especially people that are in, in facilities that were shutting off all communal activities. They were shutting off uh, visitors for fear of, of infection. So we had this idea that we knew there would be greater isolation and that older people would be struggling tremendously. As I got out there and doing the reporting, I did find some of those people. But more commonly, I found that older folks were doing better than their younger counterparts with the isolation. A lot of older folks were doing, who, who couldn't get visits from their daughter were doing better than their daughters. Their daughters were, were sort of fretting enormously about how mom or dad was doing, and uh, mom or dad actually was kind of doing fine. They enjoyed that daily phone call. Maybe they enjoyed learning to do uh, FaceTime with them. So the pandemic is hard on everybody, but in, especially in the number of studies that came out early in the pandemic, uh, older folks seem to be suffering less than younger folks. In other, in other words, everybody's self-reported mental health kind of took a hit. But the elders took a smaller hit than sort of younger people. And I wonder if uh, you've mentioned that they had sort of pared down their social lives to what is really important to them. Also, as I mentioned earlier, these are folks that went through major societal traumas, um, you know, earlier in life. 
And I've wondered too if, which, which some of the younger people have not in this country. And I've wondered too if, if that had, uh, basically toughened them to, uh, to go through yet another societal trauma. They, you know, after they've been through the Great Depression, after, after they've been through a world war. Uh, you know, a number of people have said to me that they've been through events that look like they'll never end, mm-hmm. but they do. You know, yeah, the Great like Depression really world. went on for seven or eight years in this country. Yeah. Uh, they've been through things that look like the end of the world, and they're not. So they've learned from that experience, and so they don't get as as high when things are good, and because they know that's not going to last. But they don't get as low when things are hard. I want to give you uh, – You make it to 85. Yeah. You've enjoyed a lot. Playing with house so money. You, um, yeah, you're, used to, you're used to winning. Uh, I want to give you, uh, in the last couple of minutes, we have a chance to tell us a little bit about your book, Happiness is a Choice You Make, and where people might be able to find that book. Oh, sure. It, it's everywhere, I guess, which means it's on Amazon, and it's on any of the online bookselling uh, services. Uh, I mentioned that when I got to the end of the year with the elders – I missed something. So for the first year of writing the series in the Times, I tried to really convey what being 85 looked like to the people who were experiencing it. And then because I missed them so much and I missed what they were, uh, what they were giving me for my life, I started to think about, well, why do I miss them so much and what did I learn from them? So the, the book introduces me to, all, to these six great characters, the same ones, but it also talks about the various lessons I learned from the six of them. And a couple of them I mentioned, that daily practice of gratitude, that living with a purpose, uh, that living for the things you could still do, not for what you've lost, and measuring yourself by uh, what you do for others. And these are kind of, they sound like hallmark sentiments, I know, and I feel a little embarrassed almost reciting them. But to watch them lived out, by people at the extreme end of life was tremendously powerful and and educational. They also sound like um, lessons that we could learn at any age, uh, really. Um, So the book is Happiness is a Choice You Make. Mr. Leland, stay with us if you have the time. We're going to be back uh, after the break with Dr. Matthew Russell to talk about medical care. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers. We're back with the second half today of Healthcare Today, and our phone number is 802-244-1777. My thanks to Dr. Uh, Mr. John Leland, who I believe is still with us, um, talking about the articles he had written in the New York Times. I want to bring in now uh, Matt Russell, Dr. Matt Russell, who I introduced earlier as the um, a geriatrician at Boston uh, down in Mass General Hospital. Um, Dr. Russell, uh, welcome. And you went through a, a medical school and then an internal medicine residency, and then you did a, a fellowship in geriatrics. Tell us about what you learned in geriatric fellowship that helped you, uh, perhaps in addition to what you had already learned in your residency. Thanks so much. Again, this is a great, a great uh, chance to chat. Um, you know, many of us who go into geriatrics have uh, life experience that. Uh, Looking back on it, it was sort of preordained. Um, we've had exposure to um, older uh, generations in our families, uh, have had very close relationships, 
and have also seen, you know, in our pre-medical training, um, what it is to age, to age gracefully, to encounter ageism, both, you know, structural and societal. And um, I, I will honestly say I had no intention of going into geriatrics uh, when I was in my residency, uh, and I only discovered it the last half of my senior year of residency. And I said, wow, this is pretty amazing, because what it does is it looks at the patient as a whole. Uh, it is a team-based model where you have many sets of eyes on one person, and you have team discussions. And by team, I also include the patient and the, and the family, because Many times in geriatrics, the way forward uh, medically isn't always so clear because there may be a treatment, but the treatment may be toxic. The treatment may result in loss of function. Um, And many of these things really uh, are decided when we all come together and say, what are the pros and cons and how do we navigate this together? So a, a team-based approach with, with obviously a focus on, uh, on geriatric. When you say geriatric, how do you define geriatric? Is there, there's not a specific age cutoff, correct? No, there, there, there are people who bound into their 50s, sorry, bound into their 90s, and there are people who crawl into their 50s. So, um, you know, roughly speaking, we are looking at people over the age of 65, recognizing the fact that you could fall on either side of that. If you're the kind of 85-year-old playing squash three times a week and scuba diving, you probably don't need a geriatrician. Whereas if you are a 68-year-old with significant medical comorbidities, chronic conditions, and functional decline, you definitely do. And what we try to do is, as geriatricians is we try and figure out how can we optimize this person's physical function, medical function, and cognitive function in a way that is consistent with their core wishes and beliefs about how this stage of their life should be conducted. You know, there's a popular saying that uh, uh, I don't know how much truth is in it, but, you know, 50 is the new 40, 60 is the new 50, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that's true? Is the aging cohort today different than the aging cohort perhaps 40 or 50 years ago? Um, I, w- I would I would say most most likely that the answer is yes. I think certainly people are living longer and uh, living with chronic diseases longer because we have many disease modifying therapies. For example, patients with cancer. Um, in many cancer situations, those are, are are almost managed over the period of years as chronic diseases. Um, whereas you know, 50 or 60 years ago. Um, that trajectory would have been very different. Um, I think that when we think about uh, geriatrics, it's really important uh, not to not to peel away all of the things that make us who we are in the setting of our medical illnesses. Uh, I know that you referenced with Mr. Leland, you know, if people don't have a lot of support at home, if people are isolated, um, that is a very important health indicator as much as making sure that someone's diabetes is in good control and uh, and their blood pressure is in good control. I was specifically thinking, for example, about some of the – for example, we have a far less smoking uh, – people smoking cigarettes now than, than was true 40 or 50 years ago and that there are mm-hmm. some report, you know, indications that 
uh, people actually are healthier as they get older now, just in general, because some of the mm-hmm. uh, some of those those behaviors have have changed. Yeah, there's a there's a thing called the compression of morbidity, and what that means is that people live longer and and disability free for longer, um, and that that science hasn't quite completely panned out. Um, again, because uh, you know there's the, the old saying that if you have one 25 year old in a room full of 125 year olds, you can pretty much have someone representative of the population. But if you have one 85-year-old in a room full of 185-year-olds, you have one 85-year-old, meaning generalizing to the population is very challenging because this is the stage of life when our different trajectories can catch up with us. So certainly lifestyle, you know, if I have had a lifestyle of prolonged tobacco or alcohol abuse, I, I would predictably have um, a, a more a more difficult uh, trajectory at this point, and and less of a chance of maintaining uh, good health and function. Um, one of the uh, one of the uh, important parts of a, I know of geriatrician's uh, training, and and one of the ways which geriatricians can be very very helpful to the team is talking about polypharmacy. Mm. What is polypharmacy, and why is that important? So it, it is actually a huge part. I, I think just backing up, when we think about how we teach geriatrics to both the lay public and to other uh, healthcare providers, we talk about the age-friendly uh, concept. Um, this is uh, out of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and the John A. Hartford Foundation. That there are domains that we look at with, within geriatrics as, as we examine our patients and we talk about what's important. So the first thing is um, uh, their mobility. How are they doing getting around, doing for themselves? How are they doing in their mind? Are there any cognitive impairments? Are there any unaddressed psychiatric issues? Um, Then we also talk about uh, matters most, which is putting a patient's self-identified goals on the map for us so that we know how that they how they would like us to navigate their their health story with them. And then the last thing that we talk about is medication. This is a medication review for most older adults should be happening every time you come into contact with your healthcare provider because many times through you know the fragmentation in our healthcare system one one expert might not speak to another. You might get some of your pharmac- your medicines from your local pharmacy. You might get some from a mail order pharmacy. What polypharmacy is is uh, inappropriate prescribing of medications beyond what is indicated for the disease. So there are patients who are on twenty five pay- twenty five medications, and they need to be on those twenty five medications. But then there are patients who might be on five medicines, three of which are actually not clearly indicated and or harmful. So what we do as healthcare providers when we're looking at a medication review is a little bit of detective work, finding out the forensics. How did this medicine come on board? Who started it? What was the reason? And um, trying to pair it up with a diagnosis. We have a lot of AIDS. Uh, in managing medications in older adults, because as we get older, certain medications that might have been safer, um, uh, such as like a common 
over-the-counter antihistamine or over-the-counter sleeping medicine uh, that might be okay if you're 30 is actually quite dangerous in an older adult. So our medication reviews don't just look at prescription medications, but also what are you getting from your local pharmacy? What are you taking for any herbal supplements or nutraceuticals? Anything along those lines. There are often unintended drug-drug interactions or drug interactions with other diseases or drug interactions that prevent your body from eliminating the drug and building up into toxic amounts. So it's a lot of work. It's a, it's a lot of a slog when you're going through the patient's medication list, but it is hugely important work to keep them safe. You know, we talked, uh, we had a show was it two weeks ago on primary care and um, talked about the stress and pressure that primary care providers are under f- from a lot of different uh, directions. One of them just being time pressure that mm-hmm. when, uh, they're given 15 minutes to see a patient, whether that patient is a 25-year-old with a cold or whether that is an 85-year-old person with the 25 uh, medicine list that they're coming in with. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems to me that one of the areas where you and your colleagues and, ger- and the geriatrician colleagues can be a huge help is to sort of be a consultant and to because I mm-hmm. assume you have more time to sit with that patient, uh, at least in the outpatient setting. Absolutely true. Our product is time spent with the patient and family. That is what, that is our specialty. It is literally sitting with the patient, hearing their narrative, their experience, the family's experience and narrative, not only of their illnesses, but also of their navigation through the healthcare system and connecting the dots. Um, much of what we're doing is, is bringing that care coordination piece, that wraparound care, that other specialists and primary care doctors, because of the pressures of their business and their time crunch, just can't do. The problem is is that there's only about 7,500 geriatricians in the country right now, of which only about half practice full-time as geriatricians. So we can't just have a geriatrician for every older adult. And that's where the Age-Friendly Health Initiative is really so important to, you know, get these um, office practices to say, look, you know, a 25-year-old with, you know, a sore throat and an 85-year-old with multiple medical problems who just came out of the hospital, they're not equivalent. They're not the same widget. And we have to start doing patient-centered direction of care. And I'll leave that to, um, you know, smarter business minds than mine, but it is certainly a preventative for downstream impact of rushed care, such as, you know, unavoid, uh, sorry, avoidable hospitalization, mm-hmm. falls, um, and even death. Yeah. Now, uh, geriatricians often <clears throat> are also working in nursing homes and assisted livings, um, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a different kind of focus. Tell me about uh, how your training helps you in those settings. The majority of my career has actually been spent in the post-acute, post-acute setting. And, um, when Which would be nursing about, homes, assist, yeah, nursing rehab homes centers and whatnot. In, in rehabs, yeah. And um, for, the sake of, uh, for the sake of just ease, we'll call them nursing homes. And nursing homes have generally two populations. They have a long-term population um, or they have a subacute uh, short-term population who are there after a hospital stay or a surgery and need some physical therapy or wound care or close nursing, and then they'll return home. 
There are other patients who might come to a nursing home because they are actually having a profound decline and are approaching the end of their life, and so they may be receiving hospice services in that nursing home, uh, you know, as financially allowable. Um, these these patients are, as we know from from COVID, extremely high risk because they are often the sickest of the sick in the out outside of hospital population. Um, they're cohorted, so infectious disease in these buildings can often run very quickly, run their course very quickly, and we certainly see that on an annual basis um, with uh, infectious diarrheal illnesses, but now and influenza, but now also with COVID. Um, in an effort to kind of keep our patients safe, the isolation and, uh, and this is true in assisted livings and in um, uh, uh, older adult housing, um, there's almost a solitary confinement thing, which does have um, a lot of obvious harm to it as, as well. Um, we often will talk in geriatrics about the, um, the illusion of safety uh, versus the dignity of risk. And this is one of those things that are our patients who are no longer able to be visited by their family, uh, you know, kept in their room. Are they really safer um, or are they suffering? Where do you fall on that uh, discussion? Where, what are your thoughts? I think it's about risk mitigation. And, 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 and you know, my, my feeling is if, if, uh, if my loved one has to be in a rehab, um, I want to be able to have eyes on my family member. And if that's not a possibility, uh, geriatrics is never about plan A. Um, we get down to the Greek alphabet. I shouldn't even say that now in the setting of Omicron, but we get down to the Greek alphabet before we find a workable plan. Um, it, we have many of our patients now in, in the hospital who are undergoing surgery, and they're saying, I'm going directly home. There's no way you're putting me in a nursing home where my family can't visit, and I'll just be in solitary confinement. And, you know, you, you see that the very real principles of infection control, but also um, uh, the impact on, on, on patients' spirits. And those things are just really important. And there's not really such a great answer other than risk mitigation and, and trying to find a plan that actually can work uh, for the patient and family. There are a lot of pressures in the nursing home uh, uh, side of things. And I know you're not a politician uh, uh, or policy person, but one of the things that has happened in recent, I would say the last 10 years is, Many large nursing home chains are now owned by these huge private equity companies, mm-hmm. which are um, really there to turn a profit um, mm-hmm. first and foremost and then provide care. They, they would probably say the opposite, but the fact is uh, they're there to get a profit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's created a real conflict in terms of um, uh, health versus profit at times. Yeah. Yes, it, it has. I mean – um, you, you know, I, I, I morbidly joke that as human beings, we have a 100% product failure rate. And it takes a lot of resources to keep a classic on the road. And you have to decide as a society if you find this to be your priority. And I feel very much, I fall very much in the, in the, in the camp of it is a priority, is that at any stage of our life, um, uh, how we, are, how we are, are, are cared for matters. And I would like to see, especially with COVID, you, you see, and the grand resignation and the fact that we can't find, um, you know, staffing anywhere. This is really shining a light on, okay, folks, you've got a choice. How do you want to prioritize 
um, these, because the fact of the matter is we always talk about, um, you know, that, that by the year 2030, there'll be X number more older adults and there'll be, you know, a silver tsunami. But the fact is that's going to be all of us. And we're all going to be in these places and we're all going to be in these situations. And I certainly would hope that, you know, everyone wants to get great care and, and give these, these struggling institutions the opportunity to do good care with the right resources. Mm-hmm. Let's um, talk for a minute about, and we did also have a recent show on palliative care, but talk about advanced directives and about talking with your patients about how much mm-hmm. care they, they actually would want. It's, 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 it is the matter's most part of the 4M framework. So, you know, many times this is a, a redux to do you want to be resuscitated? Do you want to be intubated? That is not the conversation we are having as geriatricians with our patients. We are having, you know, at this stage of your life, what's the most important thing for you? What are the things that you want to accomplish? And how do you want this all to look? And then what are the things that worry you? Um, what concerns you about your health? What concerns you about the inevitable decline that we all uh, will face? And how are you preparing for, you know, potentially the close of your life if, if we're getting to, you know, an end stage of a chronic disease or a more advanced illness? Uh, asking those questions more generatively, like asking about values and, and hopes and fears, that's really much more helpful because when we have these conversations, we like to have these conversations with the person who might be deciding for the patient, should that patient not be able to speak for him or herself? And that often is the case. Um, a healthcare proxy in Massachusetts might not know that they're the healthcare proxy until a moment where they're called by a healthcare provider saying, hey, your loved one is unable to speak. What should we do about X, Y, or Z? Having these principled discussions with our healthcare agent presence that's so key. It's so important. And to have that back and forth. Well, what about, what about this? Look, if I can't be able to talk to you in this moment like this, I don't want you putting tube feeds in me or anything like that. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of sample thing that someone might say. And from that, we would then extract, based on what you said to me, it sounds like this is your general view of what your health looks like, what your health means to you what you're hoping to have, what, what you'd wa- be worried about, and some lines in the sand that are valued. So just open conversation. In that we have about two and a half minutes left. I, I often ask uh, some of my guests, if you had a magic wand, uh, from your perspective as a geriatrician, what are briefly two or three things you would want to change about the current system? Uh, I think that there are many payment barriers to effective care for older adults, and I would just like to be able to get the right care for my patients at the right level of care. So I think that, you know, having to keep a patient in the hospital three nights to get them to a rehab, um, and oh, only if they're in this insurance versus that insurance, I just think, you know, once we reach a certain age, we should be able to have this, and that should be, those should be our values. The other part of it is, is that I think every hospital system should be mandated to have, um, you know, a, to, to meet the geriatric standards. Most of the patients who are doing the, the illness, the surgeries, the sickness, the death and dying in hospitals are older adults. 
let's make those places age-friendly. Well, those are those are good goals, and uh, hopefully uh, Congress will <clears throat> and the president will be looking at that. Um, <clears throat> I know that uh, uh, Mr. Leland. I know you've stayed with us in the last minute. Any thoughts on what you've heard from uh, from Dr. Russell? Well, I loved everything that Dr. Russell said, but one of the things I thought was most important is that Dr. Russell's emphasis on that incredibly powerful and often underused medical tool which are the ears of the diagnostician. Uh, I think Dr. Russell began with the idea that the heart of his work is listening to the patient. And so much of our culture does not listen to our elders, and and that includes the children and, and sometimes their medical care providers. I want to listen. We're going to have to close. I want to thank both of you for talking with us today. I want to uh, just echo what my great aunt told me, which is growing old is not for sissies. Um, and if, if there's one song I'd recommend, it's the great John Prine who wrote song Hello in there. I recommend listening to it. Thank you both. Everyone be careful. Dr. Russell, be careful with that storm coming into Boston. Be kind to yourselves. Please be kind to others. Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by AgeWell Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.